0: Oh, why don't I start it this week? Yes, sure I can, Lee Sales, um, Is that thing on? It is. As the actress said to the bishop. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not finished Oh the my innuendo God. yet. It's like I a, It's like a word. I thought we'd turn a line under Fifty Shades. No. All right. Okay, Never. let's stop it. Let's clean up this act. Uh, Yes, hello, we're in a secret location with a piano. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Lee Sales invited me here.
1: (laughs) And I've locked the doors. You said there'd be cake and there isn't. (laughs) So um, we're in a piano location because it's the 50th anniversary of the Sound of Music. What happy news. Um, And there is so much Sound of Music stuff out there to read and watch and listen to. I don't know if any of it come across your path or is it only me? It might be your Google alert. (laughs) (laughs) It could well be. So there's a few things I'd recommend to people. The first is, did you see Lady Gaga at the Oscars? I sure did. Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because... I mean, I guess I should know because, I mean, she's obviously a great musician. But because you only ever hear her sing, you know, three my, 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 my poker face, um, you wouldn't have any
0: idea that she can sing like that. Like, I thought it was mind-blowing. I found it really difficult. I mean, I A, I thought it was mind-blowing, yes, Um, and surprising, and she was fabulous. But I also was totally distracted because I thought the outfit looked like one that was about to be whipped off. And oh. so the whole time, it just, like, was quite... It looked like there was something meaty underneath it. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, I was thinking, "Oh my god!" Like she's gonna rip off that dress, and she's going, she's gonna be wearing, you know, thirty-four tranquilized ferrets or something, and it'll be like the craziest Gaga outfit ever. But then, and I was actually viewing for the first time, I think in about twenty years, um, the Academy Awards, which um, a friend of mine had taped, and then we watched all together. And I avoided any daytime discovery of what had happened, which oh. is. The hardest thing to do in the world, by the way, like not finding out, you know, even in your um, email, you know, there'll be this like blah, 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 so and so, yeah. and you're, shut up. Anyway, <laughs> I managed not to find anything out. But so I was watching with a group of people and I, because I'm the sort of loud bore at, at this sort of function that just constantly yells things out and tries to be funny most of the time unsuccessfully. And so I just kept yelling. That dress is living on borrowed time. It's gonna be all ferret underneath there. <laughs> you, you were waiting for the moment, like you
1: know, how do you solve the problem, like Maria? This is how whipping off the clothes at every
0: turn. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I got that completely wrong. Along with all of the Oscar tips.
1: <laughs> um, that, that was it. Was great. So, anyone if you didn't see it, she did, she did a tribute to The Sound of Music and sang. Um, climb every mountain. It was a medley. Climb every yeah. mountain, and the hills are alive, and everything was there. Yeah, everything that you'd want w- was. Um, Lately, goat heard there though. That's no, I my- don't think so. But that's a great tune. Isn't it, it is actually, yeah. and I-, I always think of um, clothes fashioned out of curtains whenever I hear that one. So that's worth having a look at. There's also a great piece in Vanity Fair, which is an interview with Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, and it reveals straight off the top that Julie Andrews travels with her own tea kettle.
0: Of course she does. Yeah.
1: And they're great friends and they're bonded, you know, by this experience of having uh, shot the film. So we'll put, we will put links to all of these things that we're talking about on our website. So if you want to have a look at chat10looks3.com, you can find all of these God, things the there.
0: relentless plugging that you do. I know. It's just non-stop, isn't it? There's also been... A wave of traffic now <laughs> just bears down on that uh, innocent website. <laughs> and it crashes. <laughs> um, there's
1: also been some great stuff around the original reviews of The Sound of Music because it was very badly reviewed when it came out. It was. There were a few exceptions. The Washington Post thought it was quite charming. But the New York Times gave it an absolutely scathing review and so did um, – it called it romantic romantic nonsense, I think. and Technically true. It is true. And Pauline <laughs> Kael, uh, who's a very famous American film reviewer, said that it was a sugar-coated lie that people seem to want to eat. Um, so they – and everyone seemed Suck to uni- – Suck on that, Pauline. <laughs> exactly. People uh, – did say universally, though, that it was rescued only by Julie Andrews' great charm. Um, there's something else I've been listening to a lot lately, which is a podcast that Alec Baldwin does called oh, Here's yeah. the Thing. Oh, yeah, I haven't
0: started listening to that yet.
1: You've got to – and I look, there's a few episodes you could start with, and I'll come back to it later in our discussion because I want to stick with The Sound of Music for now. But he did Julie Andrews recently, and she revealed – I mean, it was just full of awesome trivia – she revealed that – when the, she was making The Sound of Music, her marriage was splitting up, and she was really sad when she was making The Sound of Music. And she was just alone where they were filming it, and she felt terrible. So now I want to watch wearing it again. Wearing a curtain frock,
0: wearing a curtain frock, <laughs> never makes with you a feel really bad, about bad haircut. I know. That was a really bad haircut.
1: So now I want to watch it back and see if she seems sad in any way. God, the forensic <laughs> reviewing. I think I'm busy that night, sales. And she talked about in the thing with Alec Baldwin. She talked about. Um, Rex Harrison and how he hated her when she showed up to do the Broadway production of My Fair Lady. Right. Yes, he thought she was not up to it. I mean, you know, how's that Rex? Because Rex is the one who bloody talked his entire way through it. Why was surely the one not up to it? Anyway, the
0: director did some work with her and whipped her up to scratch. And yeah, she was well, okay. as the Rex Harrison of this partnership. You know, I tend to side with him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the I mean, I do want to say, of course, that having seen all this talk about the Sound of Music has raised the opportunity for a little bit of.
0: just a show tune just a casual one to be worked in i can't wait until like next week when you say hey crab it's the 50th anniversary of the first brazilian production of chitty chitty bang bang so let's go
1: (laughs) oh that's an idea so i got to thinking about some of my favorite things Politicians who leak from inside meetings Strangers who don't try to kiss me in greeting Books by Steve Toltz with one-liners that zing These are a few of my favourite things Neighbours on planes who don't do idle chit-chat Colleagues who share around half of their Kit Kat, Watching the Bolt Report's ratings stinking These are a few of my favourite things oh, nice. When the kids wake at 4am and I'm feeling mad I simply remember my favourite things and then I don't feel Actually, this is complete bullshit. I still feel extremely mad. Favorite things don't help at all. Would you like a turn,
0: Crab? Yeah, only if I get to be spoken part Rex. <laughs> I have anticipating this very silly situation, slapped together a few lines. Are you ready to go?
1: I certainly am. Get <clears throat> okay, it, Crab. <clears throat>
0: butterscotch bakelite and crisp 50s dresses competitive evaluation processes fairy wrens high on their tiny blue wings these are a few of my if not your favorite things tangy coleslaw made with grated kohlrabi Lounging till noon with my kids in their jammies. Tea cakes that someone else whips up and brings. These are a few of my favourite things. Hot chips and backflips and cuttlefish giant. Software, so long as it's largely compliant. (laughs) Phones that just sit there for hours and don't ring. (laughs) These are a few of my favourite things. Love oh. me.
1: Like, There's never been a better partnership since Rex and Julie, I, I don't think uh, Thank you very
0: much um, I uh, spent qu- uh, just an inordinate amount of time composing that I just couldn't get it to really work And it took me a while to find a good rhyme for Kohlrabi I was really trying to work in a rhyme between Kohlrabi and Shinzo Abe <laughs>
1: What did you
0: like about Shinzo Abe? Oh, (laughs) the dodgy sub deals. But then I thought, you know, (laughs) dodgy sub deals um, struck with Shinzo (laughs) Shinzo Abe. Abe. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah, Uh, look, borderline. Yeah. yeah, Not bad. I was starting to look a bit sub obsessed, though, by the end of it, what with the competitive. Yeah, I, evaluation that
1: was, I think that was quite wonderful that you worked that in, actually. Oh. I, didn't, I wasn't giving it the laugh it deserved because my piano playing was so dodgy, I had to concentrate <laughs> very intensely on keeping Also, Also, um,
0: I tried to work in open kimono, but it was just... <laughs> 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 that has got to be the moment of last week. I mean, I know it's a very competitive field, but the sheer suddenness and unpredictability of the open kimono uh, was, as you would imagine, very
1: confronting. I was tempted. I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull for the program last night and I thought it would be pretty hilarious
0: if I came in a kimono. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, already a hilarious interview though. Um, Naughtiness. Oh my gosh. A bit of pot stirring there, I think. The effrontery of, well, can you list some positive qualities of the Prime Minister? Well, Lee, we have such a short program. we We'd run out of time. The list is too long.
1: <laughs> the other bit that I loved, and unfortunately I ran out of time, to say, oh, come on, was the last question when I said, some of your colleagues find you a little socially progressive. And he said, Lee, let me talk to you about something. Gay marriage, Tony and I are positions, there's barely a cigarette paper between us. And it was like, hang on. And so his argument was that we both believe there should be a conscience vote. Now, once you have that vote, of
0: course, you know, Tony
1: believes, I believe, Believe in gay marriage, and, and Tony doesn't. But there's not a cigarette paper. That's, between that's when the
0: cigarette paper is gently inserted between their bodies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Oh mm. dearie me.
1: Um, now, <clears throat> what else have you been listening to this week, or or reading, or doing?
0: Oh right, yeah. Um, heaps of stuff actually since we last spoke. Um most of which I've just forgotten so I'm just going to uh, consult my, um, my notes oh look I've been kind of reading up um, over the last couple of weeks just um, I'm really interested in this new book which I haven't read although I've read a couple of articles by the author um, this new book by John Ronson so you've been publicly shamed it's such an interesting idea it's kind of um, the idea that you read about and instantly think oh Bugger, 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 bugger. I really wish I'd thought of that as a book idea. Because what he's done is he's gone and tracked down people who have been in those incredibly intense publicity storms where they're incredibly shamed about some inadvertently stupid thing they've done on social media that's accidentally gone viral and life changes in the blink of an eye. And he, he talks about this woman called Justine Sacco, who, um, Uh, in um, an extract that was published, I think, by New York Times magazine. Um, The article was called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. And she was going to visit her parents in South Africa. And um, she was a PR agent on the plane. She's doing all this sort of hilarious tweeting about the guy next to her who really stank and, you know, blah, blah, blah. All of these sort of... going on holidays, so she's (coughs) sort of um, high-spirited. And then just before she takes off for Johannesburg, wherever she's going, she says, going to Africa now, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white, right? A really dumb tweet, but she was obviously in that kind of, oh, I'm being hilarious here, I'm on a roll, that thing that you get when you're kind of sitting in a quiet room thinking you're being hilarious. And she switched off her phone and it got picked up and retweeted and circulated by people just saying, what a stupid remark. And by the time she switches on her phone again, she's lost her job, there 's a thousand million people who know at this stage that she 's on a plane because they 've contacted her work and they say, "Well, the employee in question's on a plane and so there 's actually a waiting global audience counting down the time to when she Ooh. arrives and switches on her phone, it goes into meltdown, and her life is just ruined like mm. that and There are so many stories um, that Ronson canvasses in this book, and it 's so interesting to hear about the continuing experiences of those people because, of course, the way social media works in this context is that it becomes just a a massive story for 48 hours and then people drop it and move on. But the people involved are affected for the rest of their lives.
1: And Um, there's always... You know, it seems to me like every week there's a different outrage. You know, it's outraged again (laughs) over something that somebody said on social media or done. And sometimes you think the level of reaction surely doesn't bear relationship to the offence. The thing I loved in that extract they ran in the New York Times as well was that he went back and looked at the history of public shaming right back to the 17th century and the tendency of people to want to
0: publicly humiliate people who've done something wrong. Right, the, this this great delight in Schadenfreude that's taken, you know. Mm. Um, and he's quite honest about it too, isn't he? Because he says that he has been yeah. a really active public shamer himself, which I think is um, pretty decent of him to um, yeah. pop up to because yeah. it's not particularly attractive to take... Um, Uh, pleasure in um, causing pain to others. But, I mean, Mm. it's it's sort of like this – often those situations are epic punishment for something stupid that somebody's done Mm. where you can't really support the initial act but then you look at what's happened to them and think, well, that is – Mm. disproportionate in mm. some way well
1: one's like there was one that i found particularly bizarre which was that mia friedman were was attacked for saying something that was construed as being homophobic and i think me is the first to admit she used a clumsy form of words i can't even remember what it was specifically now but um really people you you actually think that mia friedman mm. is homophobic you mm. know somebody who's very progressive and has spoken out many times in favor of gay rights like you know, when do we ever say say or give people a bit of slack that oh well they just that was a bit clumsy? Yeah. We don't,
0: and I think that's bad because it deters people from wanting to be in public life and in those spaces. Well, I think that people making slips, up, I mean, this is a uh, this is a complaint that politicians often make is that um, journalists jump on them now um, so hard for slips of the tongue or um, you know off the cuff remarks or um, or kind of. Caught you out hypocrisy kind of stories that are easy to pump out quickly, easy to get up on the front page and cause all this traffic and outrage. And their complaint, and I think it's a reasonable one, is that sometimes they spend so much time putting out fires that um, it eats up their opportunity to use their time more constructively. Plus, it makes them much more cautious. And um, to some extent, the dulling of political language owes itself to um, that excess, excess of caution that politicians now feel about, you know, saying interesting or provocative things and or of course, controversial things or inadvertent things to in the public. And, of course, those moments allow
1: trolls, you know, an opportunity to sort of jump on people as well, which is a big issue yeah. with
0: social media at the moment. Oh, yeah, and I uh, there's a great um, This American Life podcast going back a couple of weeks that I only listened to recently on the recommendation of a friend... Um, called Ask Not For Whom The Bell Trolls, It Trolls <laughs> For Thee. Anyway, it's um, it's voiced by a writer, Lindy West, who um, has often gets attacked online. She writes about um, sort of feminist stuff. She's um, overweight, so she constantly gets this whole, you know... She gets a lot of traffic about, you know, write about rape, I wouldn't rape you with a stick mm, kind of thing. Like, yeah. always the most... Um, Fabulous sort of feedback. Um, And she says she defines herself as incredibly hardy about that sort of stuff. Um, But her um, life got a bit spooky a while back where her dad died, so she was very shaken up about that. But a particular troll dug around and found a photograph of her dad and used the photograph um, as his Twitter kind of oh picture and used her dad's name as his Twitter handle, oh. and started um, tweeting things at her like, uh, I'm, in sh- I'm ashamed oh. of you, you, know. I mean, pretty full on. Anyway, she was very shaken up by that and she wrote a column about it, about the experience and then the weirdest thing happened. This guy contacted her and said, that's me, let me explain why I did this to you, um, I'm really sorry, can we talk? And then she rings him up and she records the conversation with his consent mm. for this podcast. It's absolutely fascinating. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I should have a listen. That
1: you speaking of podcast just brings me back to Alec Baldwin's podcast, Here's the Thing. It's so intriguing because it's not really an interview, it's a conversation because mm. Alec is in it a lot. <laughs> yeah. But because he seems to know, he just invites this eclectic, group of guests basically. It's just clearly whoever tickles his fancy yeah. of people that he knows. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, fantastic.
0: And he's actually We should get a few fancy ticklers along,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> whoever we like. I'd like Alec. Yeah. Um <laughs> sure. I'd be there. Firstly the thing with Alec is he's got that awesome voice that sounds like he's drunk, you know, half a bottle yeah. of whiskey every mm. day. So it's just it's really a pleasure to actually just listen to the sound of him speaking. But also He's just, he's wildly entertaining. He just has heaps of great anecdotes. And because the guests know him, they're very comfortable and so they're yeah. quite revealing in what yeah. they talk about. And he just barges in and asks, like, there's a great one with Billy Joel, some of the best radio I've ever heard, where he says to Billy Joel, you know, Billy Joel's been married a few times, three or four, I think. And Alex says, well, you know, why do you keep getting married, Billy? And Billy's like, well, because I just feel like when you love somebody, that's what you do. And Alex, Alex like, Yeah, me too. That's exactly exactly my problem. (laughs) And so there was another just wonderful one with Lena Dunham that made me like both Lena Dunham and Alec Baldwin more where – there's two great bits. One is she's talking about her agent who she describes as this very old school Hollywood guy, cigar smoking guy. And uh, she goes, oh, he's a member of a cigar club. And Alec goes, what cigar club? She said, oh, I can't remember. It's something that's had the word Havana's in the title. And Alec goes, the Havana blah, blah, blah club. And she goes, yeah. And he goes, I'm on the board of that club.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Least surprising reveal ever. <laughs> exactly. And then she Not goes. Not much of a stretch, is it?
1: <laughs> Excuse me. I've still, got the, phlegm, still got the sexy flam from so Fifty erratic. Shades. <laughs> You need to say your safe word.
0: (laughs) Malcolm Turnbull. What about how somebody actually sent you a message? Somebody tweeted
1: me last night uh, when I was interviewing Malcolm Turnbull and said, oh, it was a good interview and everything, but I couldn't help but thinking she just said a safe word. (laughs) (laughs) It made me laugh so much. God, Um, is Malcolm aware? No,
0: let's not make him aware.
1: so Lena Things will get weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> At work. Things will get weird when he reveals his safe words. Lee
0: sails. Lee kimono. Open kimono. <laughs>
1: close kimono. Close, close, close <laughs> kimono. Close <laughs> kimono. <laughs> um, Lena also is, is talking to Alec about how the difference between sex in the city and girls and how that's clearly a bit of an inspiration for girls but it's also um, the anti-sex in the city in a lot of ways. And she says, you'll never, for example, see one of my characters – Going out with a guy because he buys her a beautiful walk in wardrobe, or he's yeah. really rich and takes her out for great dinners and things like that. And Alex go, Alec goes, Oh, Lena, you're killing me. That's all that's left in my paybook <laughs> these days. <laughs> So it's just, it's really it's entertaining. It's very tricky not to love
0: that guy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he
1: is a very lovable guy. Although one of those people. The pick people, of
0: the bald ones, I think, it's now very clear, right? I think so. It was a bit shady there for a while. It was, but I think When Alex he was going through it. that phase of yelling at his teenage daughter, I didn't like him very much.
1: No. I suspect he's one of those men, though, who is... You can have a cr- quite the crush on from a distance, but I bet up close and personal, if you had to live with, be fairly hard going. Now, yeah, like Boris Johnson or something. Boris Johnson, <laughs> Paul Keating, like all of those type of guys. Dare I say, Malcolm? Stop my piano again. <laughs> yes. You're be
0: one of those submissive style situations. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I don't think Alex the submissive. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's wildly entertaining. Listing, um, I got to do a really <clears throat> awesome thing this week too. When I was down in. Canberra. Um, I was down there to interview Betty Churcher um, who's the former director of the National Gallery of Australia and a very accomplished woman and very beautiful and stylish um, and she very sadly has terminal cancer and probably not very long to live and so I interviewed her about how she feels about her impending death and the life that she's had in art and how she's finding solace in art at the moment and I was thinking how I found it really interesting recently there's been a few high profile figures who are facing their death clive james being one yeah. the famous neurologist oliver sacks had a piece in the new york times last week talking about he actually has exactly the same thing as betty churchill which is quite rare which wow. is a ocular melanoma that's metastasized it's very unusual for them to metastasize but yeah. it has um and he wrote about the line that, there were a few lines that stuck with me but one was about feeling as if in the past few days since his cancer diagnosis, as if he'd been looking down on his own life from a great altitude and looking at the landscape of it
0: and seeing how all of the bits now connected with each other. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's great to hear people talk about this sort of stuff, isn't it? Because, you know, I guess death is still such a private experience and um, when people's – when someone close to you is dying, then your instinct is to go and huddle away with that person and – it's so generous of people at that stage of their lives to to write and talk, I reckon. Like I I think that Christopher Hitchens' writing in the last months of his life was some of the most affecting stuff that he's done and and so brutal, but also when you have someone like him who brings this kind of writer's awareness to everything that he's experiencing, it becomes this incredible journey. And um, the stuff that he wrote about losing his voice was the most upsetting mm. part. I don't know, but but still just well, that was, a great privilege to be able to read. Exactly. Because of the, they're so
1: articulate so that insight, same with Clive James, that insight that they give you into the experience of dying. There was a wonderful piece too in the New Yorker last year I think it won a big award too by Roger Angle about being old and he's 93 and yeah. he wrote the most amazing piece about what it's like to be 93. It was absolutely wonderful. But you know when you talk about Hitchens losing his voice, it reminds me with Betty Churchill and also with Julie Andrews, actually, even though she's not dying. I'm so losing Betty Churchill sight with losing her sight. Imagine and, that. I know. And so she's got she was telling me yesterday one eye is completely black and the other eye has macular degeneration, but yep. they've
0: been able to arrest it. So she she still does have some Mac- sight. Macular degeneration is where you see things in sort of they go all sort of bitmappy or yeah. you can't see in the middle, but you can see. Exactly.
1: Yeah. But it just seems so cruel, the universe, that someone like her would lose her sight, and that Christopher Hitchens would lose his voice. And Julie Andrews, one of the things that she didn't talk about in the podcast with Alec Baldwin that was notable to me, and I wondered actually if they'd had an agreement to not discuss it, was that she had an operation to remove some vocal nodules in, I think, the late 90s, and she was never able to sing again. It destroyed her singing voice. And, like, I actually find that quite upsetting That to think that, Julie Andrews doesn't even sing in the shower anymore. Like, Julie Andrews can't sing at all. Like, it's really, really upsetting. Um, anyway, sorry, I've taken us down a very sad little cold I know, I'm now. feeling really. <laughs> I know. It's just awful I didn't know the way that the universe is, about is so cruel. Julie Why couldn't nodules? she have just lost
0: her, like, little toe or something? I, what, yeah, exactly. That would have been. Um more amusing for everybody in many ways. The, to to um to just bring it back. You could do without Julie Andrews dancing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remembered uh, this morning because my husband because I'd been in Canberra, was looking after the children this morning and he'd had a terrible morning with them and I quickly came home to drop my suitcase off and then run into work and he was sitting at the kitchen table just in a complete state. The children were asleep but he was just destroyed and uh, I said to him, because I was thinking about Julie Andrews, I said, I'm reminded of something, because he said, I just can't bear to look after the kids for another couple of hours and I said, look, I'm reminded of something I used to do in our early years of marriage 20 years ago when you didn't like doing the housework on a Saturday and I used to come up to you and go, in every job that's to be done there is an element of fun oh, find so the that fun talking the job's a game <laughs> at which point he just looked at me like he gave
0: up completely yeah, right. he just left that's the just, house and has are, not returned there are times when uh, just insistent perkiness is the most <laughs> provocative act imaginable
1: he was like laughing but it was That's... one of those really pained laughs like just please leave please i'm just gonna go go to myself in the eye with a rusty garden <laughs> yeah.
0: fork thank you so much
1: now we're gonna run um, out of time soon so oh, tell me I... randomly what other bits and pieces oh, look,
0: you've seen um one thing that i'm doing next week is um is uh pretending to be Joni tony, tony jones for a week uh for a night that is mm-hmm. um and doing an international women's day um edition of q and I'll take that it as it's, a comment. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's a highly manageable uh, panel that involves Julie Bishop, Jermaine Greer and uh, a bunch of people. But um, interestingly to me right now, since I'm just reading her book, Roxanne Gay, who is this um, academic uh, from the States, has written this just fabulous book called Bad Feminist. She's so interesting. She's a, also a Scrabble champion, which is Excellent. draws me to her. Yeah. But um, she writes about all sorts of different topics, but her introductory essay um, is about um, her experience of feminism, right? And she counts herself as a bad feminist because she secretly likes Twilight and um, <laughs> and she also was obsessed as a teenager with Sweet Valley High oh, yeah. books, you know. Did? And Who as wasn't? an adult, she even, when they put out the movie apparently, she <laughs> cancelled everything and went to the cinema and wouldn't let anyone come with her so that she could enjoy it in all its um, horror, you know. Um, but look, she... Um, is just such an interesting voice on feminism. Like, she has had a really tough life in lots of ways. She was raped as a teenager, which she deals with in the book, which is just the most... There's this sort of terrible feeling in her writing, which is incredibly frank, about her... Lifelong propensity to revisit dark places of fear, and she writes this whole essay about trigger warnings. You know that whole thing about you know rape trigger warnings or whatever references in texts, and this whole thing about alerting people to things that they might find upsetting, so you don't trigger flashbacks or everything. Yeah. And she talks about being opposed to trigger warnings because she, because people need to know the strength of their endurance and mm. all this sort of stuff. Anyway, look, but wow, I love the way she talks about feminism because she said she spent her youth and teenage years, which, and in her 20s she was quite lost, but she always fancied herself as ineligible to be a feminist because she was such an imperfect feminist. It's a really good discussion of who's allowed to be a feminist, who calls themselves a feminist... Um, and these sort of rules that people construct around feminism that make them feel like they're not allowed to kind of have an opinion. It's a great book great. and she's so funny as well. Mm, that um, sounds awesome. She's, yeah, I'm really looking forward to A, meeting her and B, then awkwardly shepherding her through 60 minutes <laughs> yeah, of high-tension Yeah, that high sounds attention so television. easy, that group of I know. People. Oh, dear God. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, I'll, yeah, I'll let you know how that goes. Um, and. Something about it made me go back and have another look at a book that I read um, quite recently um, by a woman called... Rebecca Solnit, who wrote this book called Men Explain Things to Me. And it starts with the most cracking anecdote. She's a historical scholar. She's written nine or ten books. And she talks about going to this um, dinner party, you know, in the Hamptons or somewhere, and she went with her friend. They, they kind of didn't know the people. There was this incredibly imperious, rich guy who was sort of holding court and lecturing them about this, that and the other. And um, he eventually said to her, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a historian. I've just written a book on blah, 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 some guy whose name I don't recall. And he instantly said, oh, right, well, I wonder if you're aware of the important new book on that guy that's been written. I mean, are you across that? It's fabulous apparently, you know, and, and lectured her for five minutes on it and she was thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I've missed this book in my own Ugh. field, like that's embarrassing. And then it turned out that he clearly was talking about her book Ugh. but hadn't realised. It's this incredibly dreadful anecdote and she sets it up to explore this whole um, phenomenon of... Um, men lecturing women about subjects they already know about. Anyway, it's kind of an interesting um, little perspective on International Women's Day to read and (laughs) have a bit of a moan about. Um, Speaking of um, women, can I tell you about just my
1: random stuff? Yes, random, random. Um, Just a wonderful woman and a wonderful book. Um, So Frances McDormand. Oh, um, yeah. God, she's so great. Oh, she's the best. um, Has... Been in a little mini series that's based on the book called Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, which is a very interesting book. It was a, it's about Olive Kitteridge, who's quite a prickly character, and the book from memory is structured so that every chapter is a different person's perspective, basically on Olive in this small town in northeastern USA in Maine, and so HBO's made a mini series with uh, Francis McDormand starring. It was so good and it really captured the spirit of the book. But it was one of those programs where there was so much It was so moving in really minor things, like just little minor scenes and little minor, you know, that type of stuff, minor everyday interactions where when you have the marriage of a great writer with a great director and great actors Uh and they're able to imbue stuff with so much depth and meaning and it just there were so many scenes I just felt crushed because it was (sighs) so impactful. Um, There was one that really stuck with me where there's a young man who's really depressed and he's basically come back to this town and wants to kill himself and in the days leading up to it, he sees a woman fall into a river and he rescues her and Olive Kittredge mentions to him in passing that she's had a number of miscarriages and that she's very depressed and she's been very sad. And so he goes to see her thinking, oh, well, she must be like me. You know, she must be mm. must have tried to kill herself and he wants to try to make a connection. And they sit down to have a coffee and he says, you know, did you throw yourself in the river? And she says, no, no, I fell. I was picking flowers. I fell. And he said, oh, well, oh, you know, somebody told me that you were very sad and... She said, well, I was very sad. That's why I was picking flowers, to cheer myself up. And he says to her, is that all it takes for you? And she says, well, yes. And then he just starts weeping. (gasps) Oh God! And it was and it was so subtle and beautifully done. Like it just and the whole thing was full of moments like that. Um, it was really a beautiful human story, and I just thought it was so great. So if you see that around, grab it and
0: have a look. Oh, at it. you just ruined my leisure time.
1: <laughs> well, I you know my life is such that I tend to watch everything in about three blocks, so it sort of destroys the experience a bit. I watch twenty <laughs> minutes and then I fall asleep and whatnot. <laughs> Uh, The other thing at the completely other end of the spectrum that I've thoroughly enjoyed, though, is RuPaul's Drag Race that my friend George got me onto. Oh, God, it is so funny and I so appreciate the artistry. My God, the makeup and the outfits and the creativity is just great. And there's also this enormous sense of fun. It's like reality TV but not remotely. Like I watched a bit of that Real Housewives of Melbourne and I didn't like it because they were just mean. Yeah. Whereas this just has this really great sense of fun. And so RuPaul, when it gets down to the final two drag queens who are going to be eliminated, they have a lip sync off, which RuPaul describes as the need to lip sync for
0: your life. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and also whenever RuPaul... You could be a real contender in that, I reckon. I saw the way you pronounce Kit Kat. <laughs> You're a you'd be uh, Lee Sales, the enunciator.
1: Some of the lip syncing was just truly mind blowing. Um, the other thing, RuPaul's catchphrase in it, which I've started using, you know, with reporters and stuff around the office, is he'll say he'll give his instructions and then he'll go and don't fuck it up. <laughs> It's very fun. It's just good fun and it's great sort of escape when I get home from 7.30 to watch a bit of Oh, that. you must be so fun to work with. <laughs> and don't oh, fuck it up. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Well, oh, look, I think um, we're sort of out of time. Yeah,
0: we're totally out so, of time. And
1: so, yeah, as for your Q&A next week, Crab, don't <laughs> fuck it
0: up. <laughs> I'm sure someone else will if I don't. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.